The presenting sponsor of Behind the Beak is Down in Front Productions. DIFP is a video production company located in Birmingham, Alabama that strives to provide high-quality video services for your business or event at very competitive prices with a personal approach. They specialize in sporting events, weddings, and business videography, but also provide recording and video editing work for other events such as seminars, commercials, and concerts. Give Dustin and the crew a call at 205-588-0868 or visit them at difpbham.com. That's difpbham.com to see how they can help you. Down in Front Productions, the presenting sponsor of Behind the Beat. Behind the Beat, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. Now, here's your host, Tyler Brown. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Behind the Beat, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. I'm Tyler Brown, and this is episode number 28 of the series. I'm extremely excited about today's guest. Later in the pod, I'll be talking with former JSU pitcher and MLB All-Star Todd Jones. He's fantastic, and I think you'll have as much fun listening as I did interviewing him. But first, a few housekeeping notes and some news. If you missed last week's installment, I spoke with the commissioner of the Ohio Valley Conference, Beth DeBush, and OVC assistant commissioner for strategic communications, Kyle Schwartz, about the state of the league and how it is looking toward the 2020-21 season of competition amid COVID-19 concerns. It is a ton of important information packed into the show and will give you a good idea of where college athletics stands with the coronavirus still threatening as we go into the new season. If you want to give it a listen, all previous episodes of the podcast can be streamed at jsugamecocksports.com slash podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Also online right now, the latest episode of At Home with the Gamecocks presented by Ford. It features junior shooter Sam Payne from the JSU rifle team. He talks about how he spent his time during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hosted by the voice of the Gamecocks, Mike Paris, At Home with the Gamecocks is available now at jsugamecocksports.com. In JSU Athletic News, the soccer team added Naima Beckles as its third signee for the upcoming season. Beckles from Oshawa, Ontario, Canada, joins fellow Canadians Anissa O'Brien and Emma Hoffenbrock, who signed with Jack State earlier in the recruiting cycle. With the addition of the three new faces from Canada, JSU will have six players from its neighbor to the north. That's everything new happening around athletics, and now it's time for today's featured guest, I grew up watching baseball in the late 90s, and the name Todd Jones was very prominent with those who enjoyed America's pastime during that era. Jones pitched three seasons at Jacksonville State before being drafted by the Houston Astros 27th overall as a supplemental pick in the 1989 Major League Baseball draft. The right-hander spent 16 years in the majors, primarily as a closer with the Detroit Tigers, and between his eight teams, Jones appeared in 982 games, saved 319 contests, and retired as the Tigers' all-time leader in saves. In addition, he ranks 21st all-time in MLB history in the category. This was a very exciting opportunity for me personally, and I hope you enjoy. Here is this week's guest, Todd Jones. Joining me on Behind the Beak this week, I'm very excited for our guest, JSU alum and Major League Baseball legend, Todd Jones. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
And Todd, uh, th- the first thing I noticed is you've still got the uh, signature mustache. You always had the handlebar mustache in the major leagues. Yes. Um, now, when I look at your JSU headshot, it's very baby face, no facial hair or anything. And then I, I have got your 1993 Houston Astros rookie card, and there's the handlebar mustache. So when did that start? You know, that's an interesting uh, question, and I'm really glad you asked that because in the minor leagues with the Astros, there was a there was a um, there was a mustache policy. You could have a mustache, but it couldn't be below your 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 side of your lips. So it had to stop, kind of where the conventional mustache stops, like the uh, the Tom Selleck. It has to stop there. So, um, but um, I was I would push it and try to get it to go down. And, you know, it's funny, the better I pitched that season, the more they kind of looked the other way and didn't mind if it was a little bit lower on the sides. But then uh, when I got to the major leagues and you could do it, you could, you know, you that was your rite of passage. Um, I was the first guy, or I was the guy that would pull it all the way down. Because going back to spring training the next year, all my buddies had to keep their mustache, you know, trim Tom Selleck style, and I was rocking the uh, I was rocking the goose gossage because I was in big league camp. So, um, you know, that was a separator there. It was a little bit of fun, but um, I had it for a long time. I had it the whole time I played, and uh, I I've had it I've had it as long as I've been retired. I've just kind of trimmed it up a little bit lately just to mix it up because now I'm starting to look like the old creepy guy, <laughs> and so when I'm feeling insecure. I can I can I can bring it up and I can I can appear uh, in my own brain to look younger. So uh, that's why I'm doing it now. You came to Jacksonville State from your hometown, Marietta, Georgia. Played at Osborne High School. How were you found by Rudy Abbott? How did the whole recruiting process go? How did you wind up at Jacksonville State? You know, I don't really know the I don't know the backstory. Like the only thing that I know is is when I was a senior in high school, Coach Abbott came over to. Uh, to Osborne where I was playing and uh, said he wanted to recruit me and wanted me to come on a visit and wanted me to uh, wanted me to come and uh, have a tour on the campus and I was like great you know that sounds that sounds great because at the time I had I wasn't the the, I wasn't the greatest academic uh, prowess that I am now because I'm an honorary doctorate at Jacksonville State you know (laughs) I I didn't know if you knew that I have to work that in so um you know I was rocking the not 2.0 grade point average and uh, didn't have very many chances to go places um I had a bunch of college coaches Auburn and Clemson and University of New Orleans um would want to talk to me and then they saw my grades and they said hey kid good luck you know we really hope you can find a place to play but you you can't you can't make it through the classes where we're at so I went to Jacksonville State and I'll never forget it there was a restaurant up in the square called the Village Inn Mm -hmm. and they had the buffet for all you could eat for six bucks and Coach Abbott walked in and I mean he's a legend he still is a he still is an icon here And uh, he walked in, and there was a table of four uh, older guys that were having lunch. He goes, hey, let me introduce you to the best pitcher in the state of Georgia. He said, this is Todd Jones, and he's going to be a Gamecock one day. But we brought him in here on a recruiting class. And and, uh, I'll never forget, he said, here's the best best pitcher in the state of Georgia. And, you know, for me, I was like, believed it. I was hook, line, and sinker. I was like (laughs) – Man, I love you, Coach Ab. You're awesome. And because, you know, nobody ever told me that over there. 
And um, so after we went went to the Village Inn, we got the tour of the football stadium. And I'll never forget, you know, you open those double doors, the old, now it's probably the old alumni room, but you open up those double doors and you overlook the football stadium and all the grass back then was so green. And, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. It was amazing. And I was like, I signed right there because, um, you know, Jacksonville was the, was the prettiest place I'd ever seen. And, um, you know, I met my wife here and uh, played, played, played here three years and, you know, got a chance to keep going. And uh, I'm forever grateful for what Jacksonville was able to do for me. This is some information that Eli Jenkins volunteered when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, and I've never really thought to ask this question because it seems silly. But Eli was somebody that he didn't look at records, he didn't pay attention to stuff like that. And he told me that he had never, ever thought about playing college ball until he was about a senior when he started getting some offers. And then while he was here, he said the NFL was never something that he really dreamed of doing, but he got the chance to sign with the Chargers. For you, was that always the dream to play professional baseball and to go to college and play baseball? Or was that something that just kind of popped up along the way? The, um, like the opportunity to play college baseball kind of popped up because um, I got drafted out of high school um, by the Mets. And uh, so I knew that, that I, could, I could throw or something like that. But um, to have a chance to go to college, you know, was something that, you know, kind of wasn't on my radar. Cause I, but I was, I was a little different situation because my dad left, you know, uh, my dad left when I was five years old. So it was just me and my mom. And really baseball was all I could really do. I, I really didn't have anything else. Uh, my grades were, you know, not that great because I didn't, I didn't care about class and stuff like that. And um, some point in my life at Jacksonville, I realized that baseball had kind of chosen me because I, did, I hardly did anything, um, you know, extra to work out and to, and to, and to maintain ar- arm strength and things like that. I could just, I could just stand at home plate and, throw it over the fence like it was you know like it was nothing and that wasn't anything that I ever did that was just something that was a gift um so for me in my career um you know I chose baseball because I wanted a chance to go to college and things like that but then I started to realize that I could you know do a couple things that other people you know had trouble doing and that's where I kind of realized that you know baseball kind of chose me and um then I uh you know, when I got in at at Jacksonville, I left my junior year, and I was the 27th pick in the draft. And you know, so I was a, you know, I was a, I was supplemental pick. So I was because uh, there was only 26 teams that back then. So I was the 27th pick in the draft, and and you know that kind of validated the point that I had a chance to chance to play. And and for whatever reason, I stayed healthy until I was 40, and you know got lucky on that. Learned how to work, and you know as I played, but, but as far as, um, it was all I, you know, pitching was all I had. And, um, I, I guess if I would have not been able to pitch, that would have been a different discussion. I don't know if I'd be in jail or, or, uh, you know, something like that, but I certainly wouldn't have been able to do what I, what I was able to do playing baseball. While you're at Jacksonville state from 87 to 89, 15 and 10 record, 220 strikeouts. That's 11th all time at Jacksonville State. 83 Ks in 89, 88 in 88. Pitched them to back to back 
World Series appearances. Talk about your time at Jacksonville State and just the performance that you gave, the career that you had, and how that elevated you to be that 27th pick in that supplemental round, first round. Well, it was a, it was a completely different ball of wax back, in, back when I was at Jack State. It was Division Two. It was kind of an outlaw uh, place to go. Jacksonville was was very well known for their for their baseball program, um, you know. But but Jacksonville gave guys that didn't have other opportunities chances to play academically because academic standards um, were not as not as stressed as they are now and not as not as compliant and things like that. So um, I was given opportunity to take classes to allow me to maintain my eligibility at Jacksonville. And um, so there were a lot of us that could that could perform on the field, but struggled in the classroom. And I was I was that guy. So, um, you know, having the chance to having the chance to do things that way, you're you're very kind to throw out those stats because you didn't look at at my all time base on balls, did you? Because I'm uh, I think I'm either first or second um, all I, time. I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I, I believe it is first, actually. First all time still. Still first all time. Yes, and I did that in three years. <laughs> think about that. So um, I could not throw strikes at all. And uh, because, and especially my junior year, now the, f like, you know, early in my career, freshman and sophomore years, I was fine, but then you know, somebody told me I was thinking about getting drafted again. And I was like, you mean I, got, I still got a chance to get drafted again? And so then, it, you know, I, I wasn't mentally prepared and capable of understanding and comprehending what you're supposed to do to go out and, and, and you know, get drafted the right way. I, I was so focused on trying to throw as hard as I could and, you know, I it was like me kind of kind of dressing up for that one shot in a in a movie to to you know get recognized and and become something so every time i went out there to pitch it was like i was just trying to look i'm over here you know cuz i didn't understand how how it all worked and um you know so i was i was a non factor on on the baseball team the guys around me got that team got those teams to the world series and then when we got to the World Series, uh, I had a couple games line up that I pitched really well, and I was able to help. But I certainly wasn't. There were all Americans on that team. There were there were guys that were drafted, you know, and played pro ball for a long time on that team, on those teams, because w that was the kind of talent that we had. We had Tim Van Eggman that made it to the major leagues there. We had a we had an All American for three years, pitcher named Craig Holman. That that might be the all-time winningest guy at Jacksonville, and uh, he was he was devastating and dominating. And it, and then we had other pitchers that would that were that would come in and and like get the outs. And then Coach Abbott would feel so bad he would just kind of roll me out there and let me throw as hard as I could and hit hit backstops and hit hitters and hit umpires. And um, but it was '97 or '98, and that was what got me drafted. It wasn't my pitch ability. It was just my velocity was the one thing. And, and I, you know, I own it. I, I mean, the records say it. I, I couldn't throw strikes. And, and I, I look back, you know, with embarrassment. And, but I was just a kid. I didn't know that how you're supposed to handle all this. When I was, you know, when I was throwing, I was one of the first guys that Jacksonville ever had that there'd be 
there'd be 30 ray guns, you know, lined up behind the backstop. And, and, you know, for a guy that's never seen that, that's, that's hard to, that's hard to process. And I wasn't equipped to, to learn how to do that. So, you know, coach Abbott learned on me and then helped all the other guys, you know, get through all this. And then coach case is taking it to another level. And he, and as, as the game is, has evolved, um, you know, the players now are able to, able to absorb a whole lot more and, and comprehend more and, you know, understand things. And, but just back then it was just a different era. And I was just a guy that threw hard and the Astros took a chance and I ended up, it ended up working out. How did you learn to slow it down, take your time and not worry about just trying to throw the ball through the backstop to hit the strike zone? Yeah. The pitching coach currently now for the Houston Astros is a guy named Brent Strom. And he has been in pro ball probably 40 years now. And he was my pitching coach in AAA with the Astros. And he changed my mechanics to where my mechanics uh, certainly were not conventional and certainly wouldn't have worked for, for like many other people, but they worked for me because of my arm strength, my arm ability to be able to throw. So he changed my mechanics, and I was able to get timed up. I could get synced up, and I could repeat my mechanics, and that's where I kind of learned how to throw strikes. But even, even the first two or three years in the big leagues, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a fight. Like I was never, never worried about the hitter. I mean, I didn't care who I was facing. It was like, could I throw strikes this night? And that was a really, really difficult thing for me to learn how to do. But, but to your point, everything kind of slows down as you continue to play and you get used to the 50,000 and the decks, you know, the different decks, Dodger Stadium, there's six decks and the guys on the, on the, on the back of their jerseys are Hall of Famers and all that stuff kind of, kind of goes away and you can learn how to throw strikes. And, and as my, as my velocity went down, my, my location went up and I was able to maintain whatever I, whatever I maintained. Those teams that you were talking about, those great JSU teams, they went on to win the national championship in 1991. You left your junior year. Obviously, it worked out 16 years in the major leagues. But did you know it was a matter of time before one of those teams was going to break through and win it big? Before Jacksonville? Oh, heck. I mean, if I would have had – if I'd have been able to contribute anything, you know, I feel like those teams that I was on prior to the back-to-back national championships would have had an opportunity to win them you know, we would have gotten to the championship game, something like that. And, you know, once you get to the semifinals or the championship game, you know, anything can happen. But, um, you know, we would – those those teams at Jacksonville back in that era, it was Division Two, but we would pound your head in. And, and, you know, we had guys that hit 30 home runs and, you know, guys that were 13-1 and one as, as pitchers. And, I mean, we would roll out. Coach Abbott – Coach Abbott uh, did a great job of recruiting guys that that like to uh, that like to fight and like to like to battle, and they're not a, and they weren't scared. I was never scared of anything except me throwing strikes. So, you know, all these guys that I that I played with, and then the guys after me, you know, in an alley, you want them on your team because they'll they'll fight. And that was the great thing about those guys. And, and Jacksonville here has got the – now has got the talent uh, that Coach Case has brought in um, with the same, same kind of grit. And, you know, you see, see things headed in the right direction nowadays. So, you know, we – I mean, it was a different era, Division Two, and I get all that. But, uh, you know, our guys back then, 
would have been fun to fun to see how we'd have matched up against the OVC champs last year. Um, you know, not to take away from anybody, but but you can't but you can't downgrade just because we're Division Two back then. Just like we wouldn't we wouldn't downgrade or anything against these guys now because uh, they're they do a good job. The, those kids, those guys work hard. I hate to call them kids. Those guys work hard. Those seasons, you had 41 wins in 88 as a team, 39 in 89. Of all of those games you won, is there a game that sticks out to you that you remember? And you were talking about being Division Two. You also had some Division One games there that were really tight ones. Is there a game that stands out to you that you remember? Well, you know, it was – that was when that was when the different era really was fun because in the fall, um, you know, we were Division Two, so we could go and play anybody that would play us, and and Auburn or Bama or Georgia Tech would only play us in the fall because you know they could chalk it up as well, you know, it didn't matter, you know, it's, it's the fall and things like that, and we were going over there to like prove ourselves, right? So I mean, we we had some we handed we beat Georgia Tech and you know. We beat Auburn and and uh, played played good against Bama and things like that. But um, I don't I don't know if I remember specifically one game other than the game that I pitched and uh, went nine innings and threw 175 pitches. Um, it was a super regional. Well, it would be called a super regional now, but it was a regional back then, and it was against Delta State. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Coach Abbott, you know, ride or died with me. And uh, I threw 175 or 178 pitches. I struck out 14 and walked 12. And, uh, you know, we won and we went to the World Series. And that was really kind of one of the few games my junior year I actually pitched well. And that, I guess that was what really stuck out. But but I think in in fairness to the guys that I played with, I remember the games that we'd scored 20 runs and we would only have to play five innings or, you know, somebody would throw a one hitter. And, uh, you know, I remember the feeling of when we walked on that field, there was a lot of teams that were, uh, you know, beat before they played us because, you know, I rolled on those teams with some, with some pretty good players. What would a major league team looking at a kid looking to take him in the first round say if they found out he threw a hundred and seventy plus pitches in a nine inning game nowadays? nowadays <laughs> Coach Abbott would be arrested. Um, I would be on an innings limit of about eight eight innings per you know per month. Um, you know the game has evolved so much because um, I I was a coach in the minor leagues for the Tigers up until three years ago for uh, for a couple seasons. And there's, you know, there's pitch limits, there's innings limits, there's, uh, there's limits on back-to-back -back days. Like if you throw X amount of pitches in two days, you got to have three days off. Um, and it's all based on hunches that the organization comes up with that they've found over the last 20 years when you talk about guys' workloads that these – these were kind of red flags that caused injury, so they try, so they try to stay away from it. But you know, they're like nowadays are like they're taking away the competitiveness of the pitcher that can you know fight through that sixth inning, fight through that seventh inning to get you to the setup man and the closers. And because now the starters, I mean, my gosh, you throw two hundred innings, you can make twenty million a year, and that's that's not even six innings to start. 
because the like the evolution of the bullpen nowadays was such a has 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 turned into such a thing because when I was first playing, um, even in college, you were in the bullpen because you weren't good enough to be a starter. I mean, that's what Coach Abbott ended up having to do with me at Jacksonville. I couldn't throw any strikes, so he couldn't start me, but he put me in the bullpen. And then he started to send out letters or call all the scouts to say on which day I was going to throw because they were flying in farm directors and general managers and, and you know, these big scouts from all over the country because they wanted to see me throw. But Coach Abbott was kind of in a in a pickle because I couldn't throw strikes, so he had to kind of put me in the bullpen to just kind of let me get my throwing in so these guys could come watch me throw. And that's that's what I'm grateful for him for. But, you know, nowadays everything's kind of evolved kind of almost backwards. You know, it's like you work from the – from the ninth inning back instead of working from the Nolan Ryan days of, you know, your starter goes seven and then somebody throws the eighth and somebody goes the ninth and we shower. So all that's really changed nowadays. And that's, that's, you know, that's just the way the game's going. You're taking in 89, make your major league debut in 93. You spend four years with Houston and then you are dealt to Detroit where you spend the majority of your career. And in that 2000 season, you pick up a major league leading 42 saves you're an all-star in 2000. You play in the all-star game in Atlanta, and you're the Rolaids Relief Man of the Year. What did it mean to you, uh, among all of those things, you you get to play in the all-star game, and it's in Atlanta, in you know, right in your backyard. What did it mean to you to have that big year, that year specific, to be able to play in front of your family in Atlanta? Well, I mean, ultimately, that ended up being one of my one of my best years of my career, and um, it was the only all-star team I ever made. But if I could. You know, if God said, hey, you get one chance, I was like, yeah, I'll take the All-Star game in Atlanta because, you know, that's my hometown. And, um, you know, it cost me 50 grand in tickets because I am I must have had, uh, you know, felt like 100 people. But, um, I mean, to get a chance to roll out in an All-Star game and in front of your high school coach, in front of your college coach, in front of Skipper Jones, who was an assistant coach at Jacksonville, you know, your parents, your uh, – you know your high school buddies, your uh, your haters that 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 said you'd never do anything to roll out in your hometown. <laughs> um, it was worth it, and uh, you know that that year went really well. I had a great catcher because you know my my problem it 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 went back to Jacksonville was you know maintaining your your mental toughness to maintain to not look at the big picture and just get this guy out out right here. So if you track my if you track my years, you could look at my at the better years that I had based on the catchers that I had, and they were really able to help me get out of my own way and just throw and just you know make pitches and think and you know use your brain, but um, don't overthink. Don't give the hitter too much credit. And uh, that was really one of the things that I that I learned the most is, you know, once the game slowed down and I was able to really start to think and start to plan and execute game plans and set up hitters and you know learn when to get them out and when to pitch around them and things like that that's when the game really kind of opened up for me and that was later in my career so um you know but 2000 was a good was a good culmination of that and then having a chance in 2006 to go to the world series 2006 was the was the year i pitched for the wbc which was the first uh which was the first year that that started the wbc i was on team usa and that was pretty sweet with Clemens and Junior and A-Rod and 
Griffey and all that stuff was pretty sweet. So, um, but, you know, 2000 came and it was a good year and grateful for it. After your first run with the Tigers, you were traded to Minnesota in 2001, but like you said, in 2006, you come back with the Tigers and that's a big year. You guys win the pennant, you go to the World Series. It's a team that won 95 games. You had 37 saves. And I think one of the most iconic photos from that year is after you guys win the pennant, you go out to the mound. Comerica is completely empty. Mound is already tarped. Mm -hmm. And you sit on the backside of the mound Mm -hmm. and just stare out toward center field after that game. Yeah. What were you thinking? You really did your homework on this interview, man. Well done. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, 2006, again, you have to understand the situation. Um, you know, the, the Tigers were miserable. I mean, they were they were awful. In 2003, they lost 114 games. And I was on some bad teams in Detroit from 97 all the way to 2000, 2001. And to be able to come back in 2006 as a totally different pitcher, as a, as a better person and a, and, a, you know, a better teammate and an older guy, that, you know, wasn't focused on me and, and you know, it, it was more about the team and, and to really ha- have for the first time in my life be part, be a major part of a team that people really cared about, like, like a region of the, uh, of the U.S. really cared about, um, was just, was just wonderful. So, so what I was doing on the back of the mound that day was, you know, Detroit was, was going crazy in a good way. <laughs> because they've they've been known to they've been known to throw up a ride or two, but there were uh, there were just people just celebrating, just screaming, and cars were honking horns and you know like makeshift parades of people just hanging out their window. Going down Woodward is a main drag in in Detroit. Woodward is up up near Eight Mile where Eminem made it famous, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, and and to be a part of a team that kind of rebirthed the uh, like the pride and the passion of a place is really cool. You know, and that night we won the pennant, and that 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 game was at four o'clock in the afternoon, so we were done and we had celebrated, and it was a quarter to eight or it was eight o'clock. So like like me and my wife Michelle, we went out to dinner um, up in Birmingham, Michigan, where we lived, and. Uh, went into a restaurant and got a standing ovation from the, from the restaurant. And that was, you know, that's, that's just kind of speaks to how much impact that, that that team was able to have on a, on a, on a city. So it was super special. And, you know, we lost in the world series. We sat a week in between beating the A's in four and uh, then having to start the world series at our place was seven days off and it was 20 degrees so, so we had a hard time working out when it was cold, just freezing cold. So we actually took infield. We actually took infield at Ford Field, where the Lions play right right across the street because it was so cold. It was snowing, and I mean, it was there were f- three feet of snow on the ground, and you know they were trying to uh, you know tell us, uh, you know, you, I mean, you're gonna have to play in it Saturday night. Better get used to it. And I'm like, it's 20 degrees out. How are we supposed to, you know? So anyway, we lost the World Series, and that's something that I that I really regret because I because when you're in it, you take it for granted. You think you'd be back there next year and all that stuff, and I never went back. So um, I regret that. But um, 
you know, it was a it was a cool run. I mean, I had a chance to do a lot of cool things in Detroit. I was the last person to ever pitch in Tiger Stadium, and that stadium opened the day the Titanic sank, along with Fenway, because Fenway opened that day too. But I was the last person to ever pitch there, and you know, do the All Star thing and do the USA thing and pitch in a World Series and um, you know things like that. So, you know, unfortunately, the, some of the Tiger fans will will have to uh, have to remember me as a Tiger, but but that was. Uh, that was a lot of fun for me. The last pitch at Tiger Stadium was September 27th, 1999. And the reason I remember that is because, like we were talking about before we got started, I worked with the Barons in 2015. And my office mate, Kurt Bloom, we had a picture on the wall of Tiger Stadium. And it had two signatures on it. One was Robert Fick, who hit the last home run at Tiger Stadium. And then your signature from the last strikeout, last out yeah. at Tiger Stadium. Yeah. What do you remember about that out? And what did it mean to be a part of Tiger Stadium's late history, but then also Comerica's early history? Yeah, um, you know, it was a special place because I was kind of a history buff about baseball. And I knew it I knew it at Tiger Stadium in Detroit. I knew that, that Babe Ruth hit his, hit his uh, 500th home run there. Um, I knew there were, the, there were the big outfield drains, the big drains out in right center field and left center field. And that's where that's – where, Ultimately, Mickey Mantle ended up catching a spike in his uh, on the on the grates out there in the outfield, and he blew up his knee there. And of course, Reggie Jackson's home run in the All Star Game is pretty famous for that place. Um, you know, so I knew a little bit about the history of it. And then walking through that season, it was like a celebration the whole year. So you know, people would come back, and you know, August and September there would be people that 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 would have to be escorted out of the stadium because they didn't want to leave. And, um, you know, you see the first inning and you turn around and you look and you see the people crying in the stands because their granddad took them there and their granddad's dead now and, you know, things like that. So you kind of look around and you realize it's a pretty cool place. But then, you know, when you get into September and you get into that final homestand, you get into that final game, you're trying just to not screw it up because you want to try to win the last game and, all that stuff. And we were, a, we were a bad team. And the president and the president of the club that time at that time was a guy named John McHale jr. And his dad was a general manager back in the fifties of the Tigers. And John was a suit. He was a linebacker at Notre Dame. He's freaking jacked. And he wore a bow tie. He was awesome. Great dude. He walked in the clubhouse last day of the season. I said, Hey, or last home game. Cause we had to go to Minnesota the last three to finish out the year. And he goes, Hey, uh, I don't really care what happens today. I don't care what you need to do, you guys better win because I don't want to, I don't want to go out like that. So there was a lot of pressure for us, particularly just for that game. But, um, you know, it was a magical night and, um, they finally put it up on YouTube. You can go back. There's like a three hour closing ceremony and they brought the, every tiger that ever did anything out on the field. And one, one of the tigers uh, was a left fielder and I forget his name. But uh, he was he was wanted because he had not he had he had done something wrong like not paid child support or so. he he uh. wasn't like a he wasn't a like a like a criminal like a real criminal he was just kind of the sheriff needed to talk to him because he you know he wasn't paying his alimony and things mm -hmm. like that and he knew that and he still showed up for the closing <laughs> ceremonies and and the cops you know saw the roster and saw his name on it. And the cops let him go out there on the field to tip his cap. 
and then he got into the squad car at the end of the ceremony and went to the to the police to uh, to pay pay his back back child support um so it meant a lot to a lot of people and uh it was a really cool thing so so anyway i mean that you, you know those those are things you never forget but then that winter you know you start to get letters from fans and stuff and i was i was fortunate enough to have you know pages and pages and pages of letters that that people would write and they would send me pictures that they took of that moment you know so i'd have 30 different views of that one moment and where they were and what they were doing and how many games they went to with their grandkids and their granddad took them to the first game and things like that and you know you start to think that you know the team was terrible and i didn't mean anything to it but that stadium was really really cool like like you know around here like like Fulton County Stadium or even in football Bryant Denny I mean if you're if you're the last person to ever play at Bryant Denny Stadium there's gonna be people that are gonna be tore up because that's where they that's where their childhood ended and uh, you know it's kind of the same thing. You were talking about your teammates. You've you've been very complimentary of teammates and you're talking about that 2006 season. You had Ivan Rodriguez behind the plate for a lot of your appearances. But you, you have the reputation of being a great teammate. And when you, you've obviously got a fantastic personality and you can go back and watch videos of you throwing on a Magdalena Ordonez yeah. wig yep. and uh, doing his home run celebration. You, you checked your baseball signed baseball worth on eBay to see how much people were bidding on some of your items and some different things like that. 12 cents for an autograph. <laughs> still still currently today. So I guess I'll never really technically be broke because I can sell my uh, I can sell my autograph for 12 cents because somebody in Detroit will buy it. It doesn't have to be in Alabama. It doesn't have to be a Jacksonville State fan because nobody wants those autographs. But somebody in Detroit will pay for it. What are some of the things that you remember from then, just like those antics and the different things that you did? What What's a moment that stands out to you among you and your teammates that always you can look back on that makes you laugh? I th I think just as a broad a broad view of of just learning about people, um, you know, for the for a baseball team, you know, you're usually either one or four or five guys. You're either a vampire, which means you you stay up all night and you're not married and you're out and about and you sleep during the day and you get, you know, BPs at BPs at five o'clock and you wake up at three cause you got to get to the park by four. So you can get a, get in some jogging and running and show up for BP at five. But those guys don't really last too long. But then there's the, there's the mall guys, right? Where, you get up on the road and you guys meet in the lobby and, and you go to lunch and then, then you go walk around the mall cause there's nothing else to do. So you're in Cleveland and you know, you know where every hot, hot topic is or where every, where every Macy's is, or, uh, you know, you go buy a pair of sunglasses or something like that. So, so you're the mall crew. Then there's the lunch crew, right? So the lunch crew is usually the, like the established guys in Houston, in Houston, it was Bijou and Bagwell mm -hmm. headed the lunch crew. And you had to be invited to go to the lunch crew. Because if you went to the lunch crew, you met in the lobby at 1130, you go eat lunch, and you go to the field. Because you got to get ready for the game. I never made it into the lunch crew. <laughs> I was never cool enough to be in the lunch crew. But then uh, 
then probably the most diverse crew would be the golf crew mm -hmm. because these guys were clinically insane. They didn't need any sleep. They were like, the, like in the movie, the elf, you know, if they got there 45 minutes, they were fine because these cats would get up at six 30 in the morning, meet in the lobby, uh, have a car, you know, arranged and have somebody, those guys had the seven degrees of, sep of separation that they could go play Augusta. If we were in Atlanta with a, with a day game into a night game, they could drive to Augusta and play. So, you know, those guys had all the cool hookups. So they'd go play Pebble Beach or they'd go play, they'd go anywhere and they would, they would play and they usually took a coach with them. So, um, you know, if they were a little late, <laughs> uh, like the coach could talk them out of getting in trouble. So, um, but just, just basically, I think my, my key was, was I never really took myself too serious because I was always one night away from not being able to throw strikes, A. But then, I mean, I was an all-star, and you were nice. You're throwing up all my stats. But also, got, also I got released twice. Um, I was traded for the trade deadline twice. But I was also, um, you know, couldn't make Tampa Bay's lineup uh, one spring training in 2004. Um, so I'd kind of been around the block, and I knew that – I knew that what they were – so if I wasn't going to be affected by the negative things people said to me, I, I couldn't in good conscience be affected by what the great things people were saying about me. So I kind of always was able to take either one with a grain of salt because I didn't really, I didn't really believe the hype either way. But I had to learn that. But then now that I've been done, and I've been out 12 years, and um, – there's never been one person that's ever asked me about um, how this guy hit or, you know, what did he do in the field? How did he play shortstop? They wanted to know, hey, what kind of guy is Jeter? Mm. You know, what kind of guy is Griffey Jr.? Were they good teammates? Were they nice guys? You know, what kind of guy is A-Rod? Um, because they can look on the back of a card and see what he can do. But they want to be able to, you know, cheer for a guy who's a good human being and who's, you know, tries to do the right thing. And everybody makes mistakes. And I've been around a lot of guys that try to be happy with, you know, Bruce Wayne Lambos and Jets and six houses and four girlfriends and all that stuff. And that's a dead end street. But, um, you know, the guys that can that can keep it real, that are actually good human beings are the and they're good players. You know, those are the ones you want to fight for, like Mark McGuire, uh, Sammy Sosa. They just did the 30 for 30. And, and you know, I know those guys as, as human beings, and I know that they're wonderful. I mean, I know my son, you know, was four years old when I introduced him to Mark McGuire. And, um, you know, he was just great to him. And, uh, you know, Sammy Sosa would take time with my son and, cool things like that. So, you know, that's what people want to know about when you're done is, like, you know, what kind of guy is he? So it was always important for me to kind of, uh, you know, be aware of my teammates the older I got and to try to help them out as best I could. Detroit kind of became your home. You said Birmingham, Michigan is where you lived yeah. at the time. Uh, you spent the majority of your career there, eight years with the Tigers and you are a family man. Your wife, Michelle, was there. Your children were there. What did it mean to have that family there with you 
and to be able to take your kids to the ballpark and to be able to have them at work with dad? Oh, it was, I mean, it was special for sure. And I mean, you have to have the right wife. And, uh, you know, my wife loves baseball. First of all, she was a statistician for the high school team. She had two younger, she had a younger brother and an older brother that both played. So she was at the ballpark all all the time growing up and she loved it. And, um, you know, she loved um, coming to the games and she loved you know, everything about what, what we were able to do, because, you know, if I'm having to worry about, is she okay? Is she happy? Is she um, able to find her way in all these towns? I mean, we were, we were married. I played 15 years or six part parts of 16 years and we moved 29 times. So her to have to have to adjust to each city to learn where all the grocery stores are and learn, you know, what apartment complex are we going to live in and, you know, things like that. So I had to have somebody that, 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 you know, loved me, obviously, because she met me when I drove a gremlin <laughs> at Jacksonville state. Um, and then, you know, have somebody that can manage, manage the home and take care of the kids and not have to worry about, um, you know, that kind of thing. I was able to just go out and play and, um, you know, there were, she taught me real early that, um, I don't really care who you think you are. The trash is on Tuesdays. <laughs> and if you come home and you're mad at me cause you had a bad game, quit and let's go home. Cause I'm not putting up with that. So, I mean, there were some, there was some give and take, but you know, she also understood how consuming it is, how you're just, you know, you wake up and if you're not careful, it's August and you've done nothing but go over scouting reports and, you know, hang out with your teammates. And there's nothing worse than, uh, you know, me, me being on the road and saying, Hey honey, just calling to check in. I'm going to Morton's for dinner and Pedro, Pedro and Veritech are buying. And, uh, you know, you call back three hours later and, uh, you know, dinner was amazing. We had 12 courses and all the dessert you could eat. And she's like, Oh, that's awesome. I had chicken nuggets. (laughs) with the kids um, at a drive-thru four hours ago. It's now 1130. I've been asleep for two hours. Mm-hmm. Why are you calling me? You know, so, um, but she's, she's great. And, and she still is great, but, um, but you have to have that. And I, and I was really lucky because I didn't know what it was going to require, but she, uh, she was able to adjust and it was great. You retired in 2008. You were one of the players lucky enough to get one of the very nice send-offs on the field. And uh, since 2008, you've lived in Pell City, which is Michelle's hometown. Right. So had you always lived in Pell City, or was that a way to kind of bring her home after being on the road with you throughout your career? Well, no. Now, we always lived in Pell City. So we just would, we just, I was like a migrant worker. I would go where the work was, right? Right. But my base was, was always in Pell City because, you know, the school system was really great to help my kids. We could miss a month. They could send homework. We'd FedEx it back and forth. We had tutors, you know, so the school system was able to help me out with that regard. But then grandparents were right there to be able to, while I'm gone, to be able to help, you know, Michelle with all the kids and help do the kids stuff and go to the games when I'm working and, you know, stuff like that. Because it takes, it takes a town. I mean, it takes, it takes a, like a big support group. So, you know, one thing I, I learned quickly when I retired was, I had to adjust to her schedule, you know, because she was running the house and she, she, she ruled the roost. 
you know, and I, I can't, you know, come in here and do things my way. I've got to see how she does it and then adjust to that. So, you know, it took some time, but, but, you know, we're all fine now and I'm old and smell like cabbage and nobody <laughs> remembers nothing. And that's kind of the way I like it because I'm able to just kind of blend in, um, you know, be part of society and get back plug in with Jacksonville and Jacksonville's let me, let me come up here and go to football games. And I've got a suite here now and love it and enjoy watching basketball and baseball and the brand new stadium here. And it's exciting times for Jacksonville. And, and they've let me, uh, you know, they've let me back into the, back into the family and I'm, and I'm grateful for that too. So it's been a great transition the whole time. And I haven't missed playing. Like I never missed playing. I mean, I was lucky enough. I had it beat out of me, you know, I pitched a thousand innings, pitched almost a thousand games and, uh, you know, sat through, I was lucky enough to, you know, I sat through 2000 major league baseball games. And, um, so I had enough playing, but I missed the foul territory. Mm -hmm. I missed the buses and the, and the planes and the hotels and the locker rooms, but I don't ever want to pitch again because, uh, you know, it was all I could do the last few years. And I, and I played till I was 40. But, you know, the transition from night game into day game was just killed me. And, and I just I just physically I just couldn't do it anymore. So I was very, very lucky and I and I realized that. So I'm grateful for what I had. Anyone that's followed you through your career, they know that you have very strong Christian values. You used to come out of the bullpen to Christian music. Mm-hmm. And now that you're retired, you're in seminary school, correct? I have been, yes. Um I'm not in I'm not I'm not in this semester. But um, I got accepted to um, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm taking a few online classes there. And I'm certainly not a pastor, but but I, you know, I, I God means more to me than this table. I mean, God is more real to me now than me and you talking, because you know that's that's kind of the way I'm trying to kind of view life is through a biblical kind of kind of perspective and and uh you know I screw up all the time and not perfect and all that junk but you know at least I want to try to the next day I feel awful and I go and try to make up for it and things like that and just live just try to move on and live so um you know basically that's that's kind of been as I've as I've gotten older it it becomes more and more important that that you know I, I want to be involved in things that are eternal because um uh, you know, this fame and people knowing your name and that f- kind of all fades away. But, um, you know, now I'm a volunteer at the high school. I help, I help with the baseball team there and the Tigers let me do some stuff. So I go to spring training with those guys and hang out with the young players and really just kind of try to pass things on because, uh, you know, I've been through some wars and been through some battles, but I can, I can, I can help these guys as they go through theirs um, you know, the high school kids, you can help learn how to be a man and how to be responsible and how to show up on time. And I was coaching in, in pro ball and you're able to kind of help these guys on, on the professional side of it, battle through their situations each night. And then that's, that lets you into their life. And like when you get into their life and, you know, they call you after you've been out of the game three years, they, they still call you cause they, they need advice. Well, that's a special place to be. And, and, um, you know, I, I wouldn't give that up for anything. So, you know, I've had a lot of chances to, uh, 
to kind of pass along what I learn and you know I make some of it up as we go but you know you live and learn and you try to uh you try to just leave the place better than you than you found it and that's that's kind of what I try to do we'll wrap up here soon because I, I know I've kept you much longer than oh, I listen, think you I, anticipated I won't hush so I just <laughs> I don't mind now that you're retired you've gone back and thrown out a few first pitches you've been honored before baseball games what's harder going back and throwing that first pitch at a ceremony or being in a big game come out of the bullpen and you're talking about the stacks of fans on top of you or is it the first pitch that you don't want to bounce it well it's you know it's funny I've done I've 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 been asked to do a few first pitches in Detroit and I did one at Jacksonville even and I did one of the Barons and stuff like that and I'm grateful for all those chances but I never step on the mound I won't get back on the mound because uh, I don't want to bounce it <laughs> because, uh, you know, JSU Todd can can rear its ugly head at any moment. <laughs> and if I were to throw one of the backstop, I mean, I don't I'd I'd never live it down. And they make they make memes today. So um, if somebody hated me enough, they'd make a meme and throw it out there. And then uh, then it's then it's there forever. So um, but I will say, uh, you know, pitching in the having a chance to pitch in a world series is cool on one side of it because you're kind of whipped into a frenzy. You start winning 95 games in a regular season, you get used to winning and then you get to the playoffs and it's do or die and you haven't died yet. And then, you know, but it's, but it's different when you go to the world series and you look in the outfield and you see the out of town scoreboard and there's nobody playing. And you go into the locker room because it's 20 degrees in Detroit in the in the third inning, and uh, and you turn on the broadcast and it's Tim McCarver and Joe Buck, mm-hmm. and they're you know promo in the World Series and wait a minute you, that's your teammates out there and so you have to go get back on the field so it feels like a just a regular game, but if you if you stay in the locker room or you or you get sucked up in the in the pageantry of it. You know, it, it 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 can become an overwhelming thing, and um, you know, I can remember, and I'll never forget till the day I die. Um, you know, being out there on the field and having trouble breathing, like like physically, physically gasping for you know air because you just don't want to embarrass yourself. I mean, you wanna you wanna try to win, and you want and everything's on the line, and and it's all that matters, and. So, um, but still, um, now that you, now that I don't throw every day, uh, going out there on the field and throwing out the first pitch is pretty scary too, <laughs> but I can always laugh it up. I can go have a hot dog and say, ah, you know, apparently you didn't see me pitch or, you know, something <laughs> like that. So I've gotten pretty good at being able to deflect. Well, Todd, thank you so much for coming on today. I, I really appreciate it. I was a huge baseball fan growing up, so this has been a real treat for me. And I think our fans really enjoy it too. Thanks, man. And hey, I can I can sign you a autographed baseball and save you twelve cents. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. All right, sounds good, man. Thanks. Just one quick note before I close out this week's episode: when Todd and I were discussing his all-time base on balls record at JSU, I wanted to clarify that his 142 walks ranked first in the Division II era, but second all-time in the baseball record book. So, Todd, your record no longer stands. So that's it for the fact check, and that'll do it for this week's edition of Behind the Beak. I hope that you and yours are healthy, and I will talk to you again next week. I'll be back Tuesday with a brand new episode and another guest. With that, I'm Tyler Brown saying thank you for listening, and go Gamecocks. 
This has been Behind the Beak, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. Look for new episodes each week or browse the archives on the Apple Podcast app or by visiting jsugamecocksports.com. For more on Jacksonville State Athletics, visit the official website of the Gamecocks, jsugamecocksports.com, and follow JSU on social media by searching at JSU Gamecocks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 